Occult Confessions is brought to you commercial-free through the generous support of our patrons. Visit occultconfessions.com and click on Donate to help keep the history of the occult on the digital airwaves. In 1976, Donald Bain, a personal friend of the talk show host Long John Nebel, published what he called a real-life account of CIA mind control. For our non-U.S. listeners, the CIA Central Intelligence Agency is uh, one of two major intelligence-gathering organizations in the U.S. Nebel had made an extensive series of tapes of himself hypnotizing his wife, the World War II celebrity pinup model, Candy Jones. While in trance, Jones described to Nebel how she had been programmed by a doctor using psychopharmaceuticals to develop a split personality named Arlene Grant. Both Jones and this second persona then worked for the CIA delivering messages around the United States and to the Caribbean and Taiwan. Although there is very little documentary evidence for this account, it serves as a seminal tale of mind control, coming out in the year before the public would learn of the CIA's MKUltra experiments. Jones's narrative, told by Donald Bain, became a kind of prototype for the mind-controlled sex slave books of the 1990s, and, given the means of its discovery, also reflects the experience of Michelle Smith working with Lawrence Pazder. Today on Occult Confessions, we explore the strange story of the mind-controlling of Candy Jones. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am joined here this day by our, I always want to say something about mechanical birds, sister of the 84th degree, <laughs> imagine that I said something about mechanical birds, Savannah Verrett. That's me, and I'm wondering, are we, we're still talking about conspiracies? <laughs> yes. As you'll recall, I... Savannah, yes, we so. <laughs> oh. <laughs> we did talk about them <laughs> a yes. year ago, and then we took a break and talked about some other stuff, you know, like alchemy and discordians and stuff. Remember all that? Oh, you're right. Yeah, now we're yeah. back. We're back. It's been a, it's been, yep, the year is um, long. <laughs> the days bleed together into one long season for Savannah. They really do, yep. Also, uh, Andrew Mims. Andrew howdy, Mims, howdy. who has a title that we that cannot be spoken. I tried to speak it. I uh, my my tongue just kind of burst into flames. It was <laughs> hell of a time to try to put out. Cannot be. It sounds spoken. like you recovered well. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. It, it got better. <laughs> Good. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tongue bursting and then a miraculous <laughs> healing in, instantly. <laughs> like a phoenix. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> the tongue rises again. <laughs> Here we go. We the members of the secret, of the secret order, order of, of alchemical, alchemical actors, actors do solemnly commit, commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the history of the occult as far as we know it. I've messed that up really bad. That is okay. <laughs> did you get off the train in the middle, or did you even get I, on the train? I was off the train at the start. I got on the train for like a little bit, for like about a little bit of the track, and then I hopped off onto some different entire train whatsoever. If you want me to dub it over <laughs> later, I can. <laughs> no, I think we'll leave it just like that. That's part of the charm of the show. Uh, uh, Savannah, yeah, open up those plugs for me. Uh, plug, plug, plug. We want to thank our newest patrons, Chesmere K, Luke S, Samuel B., Britt H. and Nathaniel M. We also want to thank Serial Mandy and Greg D. for the pledge bump. 
Yay, thank you. Woo! Woo! Now, today's plugs are brought to you by a question that has been put to me more frequently than I would generally like to have it put to me. Uh, and that question is, hey, Rob, or hey, jerk who runs this podcast, or hey, a-hole, <laughs> are you a sheep or are you a shill? A sheep? A sheep or a shill. So today's episode is brought to you by the words shill and sheep. Uh, <laughs> and I, I want to answer that it, it, before I get into this episode topic today. I would like to answer this question. Hey, Dr. A-hole, are you a sheep or a shill? Let's start with shill. A shill suggests uh, that there's some financial motive to what I'm doing here on this podcast. I want to remind everyone, I have no corporate sponsors. My show is entirely crowdfunded. And my listeners are some of the most independent thinkers on the planet Earth. That is no exaggeration. The people who listen to this show, who are listening to my voice right now, who many of whom I know, all of whom I love are open to paranormal phenomena, extraterrestrial encounters, multiverses, and pubic hair. As far as my job at a small teaching <laughs> college, technically, technically I have academic freedom, which guarantees my right to say whatever I like. I am going to acknowledge right now, though, that today academic freedom is not as powerful as it once was. I understand with the advent of cancel culture that this has threatened academic jobs, but what I want to say here is this is a punitive and not a prescriptive aspect of our culture right now. If I discovered a satanic cabal exists, I might worry about sharing that information. In that case, I might simply withhold my findings out of fear that it might impact my job, get the cancel culture folks all wound up, and they would come after me. What I wouldn't do, though, is proceed to air a bunch of episodes arguing the exact opposite point. You see what I mean? It's punitive, not prescriptive. It doesn't make me say anything, but it might prevent me from saying something. Honestly, though, if I could provide documentary evidence for the existence of a satanic cabal, I would be able to start a whole new career making much more money than I do this way. <laughs> I know this because my rivals in the podcastosphere who promote the legend of the satanic cabal draw both an audience and corporate sponsorships for that message. The truth, my friends, is harder to share and far less lucrative than the lie. All right. Part two, <laughs> the final plug. Boom. Boom. <laughs> I, I got to pick it back up, Savannah, because I got to answer the sheep question. If you're not a shill, <laughs> Dr. A-hole, are you a sheep? The term sheep suggests that I have been deluded by the elite satanic cabal to share their message. So I'm a fool in that case. At this point... I'm going to I'm going to try to do this as humbly as possible, but I have read hundreds of books on this subject, including many primary sources across two millennia of human endeavor. I have earnestly looked for any reasonable evidence for the existence of a satanic cabal of any kind. What I am presenting here is what I found through this research. If you watch even a thousand hours of YouTube videos, that does not compare with digging into the actual archive, reading, and thinking critically about these claims for yourself. I have said many times that conspiracies exist. For this reason, we need to take conspiracy claims seriously, and that's what I've done here. We need to learn what we can from them, discover what truth we can in them, and then turn our focus to the real evil in the world, which can often as not, take the form of hate inspired by false or cynical theories. Mim, Savannah, are either of you a shill or a sheep? 
Uh, absolutely not. No. Obviously. <laughs> obviously, you are I'm... neither shill nor sheep. <laughs> nah. I'm fighting the good fight against the birds here, so. Right, that's true. You are the least <laughs> sheepy of all of us. <laughs> sheep no are sheep notorious here. bird fans. Sheep love birds. <laughs> it's true. I've seen. I've seen things. Yeah, they get along. They hang out together in the pastures and have conversations and conspire. Things that I can't unsee. <laughs> Let's no matter up. how Let's hard close. I've tried. Close up the plugs. Hurry, Savannah, before he gets plug, triggered. Plug, plug. <laughs> Friends, before we get into this, let me just say, people like us, people like you and me, I'm talking to Savannah, I'm talking to Mims, I'm talking to everybody listening to this show right now. Our minds are open, so we need to be especially careful about what we accept as true. It is healthy to doubt, to wrestle with contradictions, and to withhold judgment. Uh, So we're going to do some more of that today. Let's get into it with Candy Jones. I like Candy Jones quite a bit. I want to get it before I even say this. Savannah and I were talking for a bit. I really like Candy Jones, and uh, I'm going to see how you guys feel about her after I've given her her biography here. She's a very interesting character. Uh, she's a war hero. So Candy Jones was born Jessica Wilcox on the 31st of December 1925, New Year's Eve. She was born in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, uh, which is where one of my best friends lives, my and my accountant. <laughs> and I, I, uh, I went where I went to college was just south of Wilkes-Barre, about an hour south. So I uh, know I knew a lot of people in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. And uh, well, Joe Biden's from Delaware, but. Uh, he went to Scranton in Wilkes-Barre, FYI, our current president in the United States. Uh, and it's where the office is set. I was literally just about to say that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, maybe I... Yeah, yep. give or take. I played a show there once for the bartender. And just the guy for the on bartender? A longboard. Yeah, it was like, <laughs> it was the bartender and a guy on a longboard. That's the only people that showed up besides the bands. <laughs> Are you in, were you in like a death metal band, Mims? What were yeah, you? I was in yeah, I was in a death metal band, <laughs> and we we were on a tour, and we decided, uh, they decided to uh to book us in Scranton on Memorial Day, and <laughs> the bartender showed up, and well, because he had to, and then we just saw some guy riding by on a longboard, and we were just like, "Hey, longboard guy!" And, and he came uh, in. And he came in, yeah. So you guys were so Hell busy yeah. rocking hard that you had time to walk out front and get somebody <laughs> off the street. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, Scranton. I love you. I love you. I do. I love that part of the state. I love that part of Pennsylvania. It's a special place. Oh, it's beautiful. It is, yeah. But I don't know if I want to be a death metal band wandering around there. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. It was... So Candy oh, Jones's father, Jay Gordon Wilcox, left when she was only three years old. She remembered her father visiting her when she was four, uh, and when she told him that she wouldn't cry when he left, he squeezed Whoa. her fingers in a nutcracker. Oh, my God. Yeah, okay. she was. he was like, aren't you sad that I'm leaving? And she was like, I'm not sad. I just barely know you, which is pretty sassy for a four-year-old. And so he's like, I was about to say, that's I'll pretty badass. Then he, yeah, then he hurt her. So traumatizing relationship with dad. Yeah, doesn't sound healthy. Her mother was also named Jessica and was often cruel to her daughter as well, refusing to let her have friends and locking her in a dark room for long stretches of time. 
She would threaten to give little Jessica away to an orphanage if she didn't behave, and even even went so far as to bring her to an orphanage to sort of show her around. Oh my god. What in the hell? Sounds like loving parents. Love, yes. (laughs) So, I'll make you feel a little bit better. Despite her conflicted relationships with her parents, Jones did have a positive authority figure in her life. She was close to Grandma, who often indulged her and protected her from her mother. But her grandmother died when she was 11, and after that, Mm -hmm. she and her mother moved to Atlantic City. Sort of idolized Grandma. Her less-than-ideal childhood caused Jones to develop a crew of imaginary friends, including one she called Arlene Grant. Imaginary Arlene stood up for her when she was abused or neglected by her mother and father and served as a kind of alter ego. Arlene seems to have belonged specifically to Jones's childhood until she was programmed to work for the government decades later. So we're going to go ahead and put a pin in that, put a pin in Arlene, and I'm going to come back to her. When she was 16 years old, Jones won the title of Miss Atlantic City in a pageant. Now, Mims, is it right you came in second place when you went up for the Miss Atlantic City? Yeah, second place. Yeah. Uh, it's it was a it was it was a close close uh, close run. But what do you uh, get for that? What's the prize look like for that? Uh, twenty three. Twenty three. What? <laughs> I wish I could tell you. Twenty three dollars. <laughs> 23 skidoo. So (laughs) back in the day when Candy Jones won the Miss Atlantic City pageant, she was just Jessica Wilcox, by the way, back then. So when Jessica Wilcox I was about to say, Candy's a good name for like a pageant winner like that. But Candy's Jessica's also a good name for that. She's just Jessica Wilcox, (laughs) just normal girl from uh, from Wilkes-Barre right now. But her prize was the opportunity to act as a hostess for the contestants of the Miss America pageant, which was always held in Atlantic City. So we don't want to confuse the two. Miss America was a bigger event, so we had the little Miss Atlantic City pageant to figure out who gets to host the girls for the bigger Miss America affair. Hmm. Jones caught the eye of John Robert Powers, who was the head of a modeling agency, and went with her mother to visit his offices in New York. Her mother was opposed to the idea of Jones having a modeling career, but Jones was adamant. As a matter of fact, when How they were... How old is she at this point? Was... She's 16. Hold on. She's 16. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, and as a matter of fact, I, I believe, don't quote me on this, but I believe her mother was taking her to secretarial school or something, and oh. they stopped over in New York because this guy had given her his card, and... And she was just like, yeah, screw that. I'm not going to be a typist. I'm going to do this instead. There we go. So, but that's 16. Again, she's got moxie. She's got what what, what we would say is moxie. Uh, Powers had lured her with the false promise of a modeling gig and then attempted to sell her on his modeling classes. So in other words, you get what I'm saying? She, she yeah, got there. He was like, I got jobs for you. You're so pretty. And then she gets there and he's like, it'll be $2,000 to take my hand modeling class and $5,000 to take my knee modeling class. Mm-hmm. So it's a scam. Uh, it's a scam that yes. is still around. If you guys come across this, there's always girls in the mall, right? Somebody approaches, you know, the girl in the mall and they're like, hey, you should be a model. Uh, you just call this number and it turns out to be these expensive classes. Yep. So it hasn't gone away. This is a, an old scam. Um, but Jones, instead of just like, you know, saying, oh, shucks and leaving, she called him out. She's like, man, you lied to me. Uh, so Powers put her in the modeling bullpen for two weeks. So basically there was just this room. I don't know. Maybe this is still true. I, I have nothing to do with modeling. I've always been in live performance. Uh, but apparently there was just a room 
where the pretty girls would hang out. <laughs> and people would come by and they would be like, I need three of your best brunettes. And then they'd be like, right this way. And you go into the room and you pick them out. So for two weeks, she got to hang out in that room and let people, you know, like buy her services. That sounds, I mean, like that, that sounds predatory almost. <laughs> That's the 30s and the 40s in a nutshell, really. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, I mean, you wanted to get picked, you know, as a model. I mean, it's still sort of that way, right? They leaf through books or whatever. I don't know. I, I only know what I've seen on Tyra Banks or something. But Go through, like, their Instagram <laughs> probably. <laughs> <laughs> what Janice Dickinson has taught me on reality TV. But... Uh, <laughs> Basically, you know, you wanted to get picked because you would you get the fee. So you only get paid if you get hired. And then the modeling yeah. agency takes a percentage of the fee. You see what I mean? Like an agent. <laughs> they literally take... Uh, that's crazy. They take a portion of the cut because they put you in a room. Right. So <laughs> you're, you're basically renting a chair in the bullpen. <laughs> Uh, so, so Powers put her in the room. Uh, she got two jobs out of that over two weeks, and she was not satisfied. So she walked across the street to Harry Conover's agency, where Conover was like, oh, yeah, I could totally make money with you. He changed her name to Candy Johnson. Hmm. <laughs> now, but there wait, Rob, is. that's not her name. She's not Candy Johnson. You said her name is Candy Jones. I did, because she couldn't remember Johnson, so she kept calling herself whenever she introduced herself to anyone candy jones <laughs> so, <laughs> so harry conover just gave up and he was like fine you're jones we'll just be jones from now on <laughs> it's a good it's it works right if you want to brand yourself if you don't like how you're being branded just pretend like you can't remember <laughs> the brand <laughs> a secret order of alchemical what now rob Anyway. Dickheads. (laughs) That's what it was, but you guys kept pretending like you couldn't remember dickheads. (laughs) So I changed it to actors. So uh, this is the next thing he did. It's sort of like the original viral marketing campaign. He distributed 10,000 business cards that said Candy Jones was here and passed them all around the city of New York. It's like an analog viral marketing like stunt. Terrifying. It worked though. Like, Jump started her career to like random places or like places that would be relevant. No, no, well, there was ten thousand of them, so I'm sure like some of them were just like in the girls' bathroom, <laughs> but others may have been, you know, in the right place. One like at on least subway, a subway, yeah, wherever. <laughs> <laughs> well, if there's ten thousand of them, they're going to get around. But one of them found its way into the hands of Warner Brothers executives who ended up signing her to a contract, giving her voice and acting lessons. And by 1943, she was named Model of the Year. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it all worked out. So that 10,000 business card thing, maybe it won't work anymore because of the Internet, but it's, <laughs> it's still worth a try. It. You never know. You never know. We, have a, we probably have 10,000 to call confessions business cards, but our listeners stretch from here to New Zealand. So it's super hard <laughs> to get them distributed in any meaningful way. We'll put them on a cargo ship. It'll oh. make its way over there like a rat. <laughs> it might get stuck in the Suez Canal, though. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> there, go, there it goes. Our viral marketing campaign failed. Topic. Topical. Cucked by the canal. So... <laughs> In 1944, she joined a USO tour. I mentioned at the beginning, I consider her kind of a war hero. Um, 
So she toured in the USO in a show that was specifically written for her, and she spent 18 months performing for troops stationed in the South Pacific. In Morotai, in 1945, she contracted malaria and ended up in a field hospital in the Philippines where she also contracted jungle rot. So, Whoa, what it, is that? It's gross. Her skin turned greenish-yellow, and the <gasps> nurses had to shave her head because her hair was falling out in clumps. Oh, my God. Yeah, so not good. Not good for a model. I, I sort of, I guess I connect with her a little bit here because my grandmother was stationed in Japan and contracted tuberculosis while she was in the army. Uh, so it was very common to for these sorts of things to happen. Albeit tuberculosis was, uh, well, I, I think this stuff was pretty dangerous. Malaria is definitely dangerous, and the jungle rot sounds say, was really jungle unpleasant. Rot dangerous? Yeah. yeah. So all of them it are dangerous. Really painful. Uh, yeah, either way, it, 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 it's got to suck. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. While she was sick, though, she made the acquaintance of several army medics, including a man that Donald Bain calls Gilbert Jensen. Jensen gave her a picture of himself with his address written on the back, which is, I guess, what you would do back then. Sort of like we used to do in middle school. <laughs> on we, picture day. Rob? Yeah, I, I don't know. Did you, you guys didn't get little was... wallet pictures in middle no, school? I, no, I like kind of cried in the corner every day. Oh, all right. You would get these little wallet pictures and you write your name on them and give them to your friends. Anyway. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the fifth grade, you would get the laser background. The most we would do is we would write, have a good summer in the back of each other's yearbooks. <laughs> that was it. Yeah, but you didn't get the No, no trading no cards size. with each other's faces in it. Well, then you, <laughs> you wouldn't have gotten on very well in the South Pacific during World War II, Savannah. <laughs> I, I believe that. I think that's the truest thing you've ever said. <laughs> <laughs> she did not, uh, in fact, marry any of the CBs out there in the South Pacific, though she married her boss, Harry Conover, but their marriage was not a happy one. Jones was Conover's second wife. He'd had two children with his first wife, Gloria Dalton, um, and Jones and Conover had three boys together, but Jones discovered that Conover was, in her words, bisexual and could only have sex with her when he was drunk. So I'm not sure about bisexual, to be honest, in that instance. That sounds maybe homosexual. But we can't really label from this far in the future. In May 1958, Conover briefly disappeared, eventually turning up in a suite at the Plaza Hotel. He lost his license to do business in New York when models came forward to complain that he'd withheld their fees from them. So, you know, mm. the, you would pay the agency and the agency would pay the model. And, and apparently the, he was holding on to all the cash. He drained his joint account with Jones. And when she divorced and sued for child support and alimony, he ended up in prison for debt, which apparently they still did in the 40s and the 50s. <laughs> Wild. That's that's weird to think about. Right. Like sending to prison for debt. Like, I know it was a thing, but like not that recent. I, yeah, I always associate it with like Charles Dickens. Yeah, you know, <laughs> not with nineteen nineteen like nineteen fifties America. That's you know like Elvis and women wearing poodle skirts and stuff. So teenage girls, not not just regular women. <laughs> <laughs> all the, all the adult women dressed like Lucille Ball. I assume they wore aprons a lot. Jones's story turns to espionage after Conover was out of her life. You ready for this? So here we go. It's CIA time. We've done <laughs> the bio. Time. Now we're going to get into this. 
She was running her own modeling school in New York. And Jean Tunney, T-U-N-N-E-Y, Jean Tunney, kept an office across from hers. Now, I did a little bit of research on Tunney. He's a fascinating character. He was a boxer who had been the heavyweight champion in the 1930s and went on to serve as lieutenant commander in the Marines in World War I. Well, I guess didn't go on to. He did that before the 30s. <laughs> so he had been a lieutenant commander. Had off. Yeah, right. He had been a lieutenant commander, and then in the 30s he became a heavyweight champion. Uh, in 68 official fights, Tunney only ever lost one. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, he was good. During the Second World War, when he was in his 40s, he set up a training camp for pilots at the request of the Navy. So he developed essentially like the physical fitness routine for Navy pilots. Okay, now let's get back to Candy Jones because she has her office across from this guy. It's like the 50s now. Jones witnessed two attempts to break into Tunney's office before she ran into an acquaintance, a retired army general who had come to visit Tunney. So there, she witnesses these two strange attempts to break into the office. Then the army general comes by. He's retired, but she knows him because she was in the USO. Tunney knows him because he worked with the Navy. You got me? Uh-huh. So it's a mutual acquaintance between them. A few days later, this gets weird. I, I'm not going to have answers for you guys on this. I'm just going to warn you in advance. A few days later, <laughs> an FBI agent came to her office to ask about the burglary at Tunney's office. He noticed one of the microphones that Candy Jones used to train her models, and he asked to borrow it. And then he asked if he could have some mail delivered to her office. <laughs> like him mm. personally? He, well, I guess like his secret FBI mail. I don't even, like the implication <laughs> is that like for some reason he doesn't want it delivered to wherever he normally gets his mail, but wants it to come here. He also doesn't have his own microphones. He likes this one that she has. I like to imagine he did have his own microphones, but like just that one was just like really nice. <laughs> a little bit cleaner. It's a yeah. cleaner looking mic. <laughs> so Tunney moves his office, our boxer. Uh, however, the retired general who had met up with Jones, sort of like reconnected with her because Tunney's office was across from hers, just coincidentally. He didn't know Jones was in there. He was coming to see Tunney. He kept up with Jones even after Tunney moved and kept coming to visit her. And he finds out that she's traveling to San Francisco and he asks Candy Jones to deliver a letter for him to a doctor in the area. Again, super weird because why is that weird, guys? Uh, just send it through the post office? <laughs> <laughs> yes. You buy a stamp, right. man. Be the the normal thing to do, but you know, I'm not here to judge. <laughs> you are though. <laughs> it's part of your oh. function, Mims. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> the letter, as it turned out, was for a Dr. Gilbert Jensen. Does that name sound familiar at all? You you definitely said that earlier because I remember thinking to myself, I like the name Gilbert. <laughs> remember it for a future pet. Uh <laughs> I will. Gilbert Jensen was the name of the medic who had treated her in the South Pacific and given her his photo and address. Okay. Oh, there it is. What a coincidence. I don't know if he was a doctor <laughs> at the time, but now he is. And according to Donald Bain, after this fateful meeting, Jensen would recruit Jones to be his mind-controlled spy for the CIA. 
Okay, let's process this for a second. Before we go any further, gotta take a little time for this sequence of events. Candy Jones was running a modeling agency that just so happened to be across from a boxing champion who maintained connections to a retired army general. Totally a coincidence. This boxing champion, at the height of his military career, had run the physical fitness program for the Navy. To make sense of this story, we also have to believe that Tunney was somehow involved in military intelligence in some way and continued to be well after the war. Because this general clearly had something to do with intelligence, which is why he sent Candy Jones to meet Dr. Jensen, right? That's the only way any of this makes sense. Otherwise, he would have stuck a stamp on it, right? We <laughs> put it in the mail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's... So they were, like, tracking her? Like, but not tracking. I can't think of the word. Tailing it would, her? It would be a pretty long game, in my opinion, but I'll yeah. get to that. I'll get to that. So it's also true that the FBI showed up to investigate potential break-ins into Tunney's office, which suggests that he has something to do with intelligence, because you'd send the cops if it's just a guy who boxes and has an office. The FBI doesn't get involved in that, that robbery. (laughs) So we'd have to be actively involved in some kind of military intelligence to get the FBI off the couch. Yeah, that makes sense. Either way, both the retired general and the FBI agent met Candy Jones by chance and sent Candy by pure chance to meet Jensen, who just so happened to have already met her and decided to conduct experiments on her and use her as a courier for the CIA. Coincidences really stack up here. Like, I mean, going to Savannah's long game here, <laughs> it would have to have been that... What, you, you want to go through it? What would the long game be? How, how would have this have worked out? They would have had to have known that Candy Jones had that office there, rented the office across with Tunney. Yes. Sent the general there on purpose (laughs) and the FBI guy on purpose to run into Candy Jones. But like after waiting a while, it's not like he did it right away. Yeah, they got to feel it out. (laughs) They're playing 3D chess over here. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. They are the Matrix. We, we get the we get the gist here. It was also the case that Candy Jones was already taking a trip to San Francisco. So this would also mean that the FBI and the Army General were just patiently waiting for her to someday get on a plane to San Francisco. <laughs> I believe it. They knew what they were doing. <laughs> this is it's all very likely to you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Jensen, presumably working for the CIA, Dr. Jensen, our, our Army medic, um... Let's talk about this presumably working for the CIA, because Donald Bain, our, the author of this book, claims explicitly that Jones delivered messages for the CIA. So Jensen sort of has to work for the CIA. And Jensen decides to conduct his hypnosis experiments not on agents, but on a private citizen, namely Candy Jones, and have this private citizen deliver deliver sensitive material from the CIA to operatives around the country and around the world. Are you still with this theory, Savannah? It just makes perfect sense. Like, who would suspect <laughs> Who Candy would suspect Jones? Candy Jones? <laughs> it really is just kind of like a who would, it, who would suspect that sort of thing. Cause... I, but it's, there's so many variables, though. If you're looking at this realistically and logistically, it's like, why would you ever trust someone just a random person especially like a celebrity to deliver secret stuff i don't know right there's that, nothing taking off my tinfoil cap for a second but i'll yeah. put it back on and say <laughs> i believe it like it's like if you like 
hired an Instagram model to like carry state secrets to somebody else. <laughs> that is what... That's oh exactly like that. Yes. It's more or less exactly like that. Like a successful one, like one who's running a good, you know, branding operation yeah, yeah, or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah like a yeah, like an influencer. Yeah, they just got into TikTok. Yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> and they're also for some reason carrying CIA intelligence around. <laughs> Seems reasonable. So Jones travels for these operations either as herself or under the assumed name of Arlene Jones. Uh, Arlene Grant, sorry. Candy Jones, Arlene Grant. Jones's hypnosis prevents her from remembering her missions, though. So they program her so that she doesn't remember what she's done. Okay, so I I just have to say. Very (laughs) smart. Savannah aside, I find this deeply odd. Let me tell you why I find this deeply odd. Number one, Jones is a private citizen who is not involved in any criminal enterprise, so she's not a useful informant in any way. Usually the CIA or any government agency involved in criminal justice might recruit you as an informant if you have some connections to people doing illegal things. She's just a normal lady with a business (laughs) in New York. And given that anyone's memory can be erased by Jensen's programming, it would make a lot more sense to use an actual CIA agent to carry out these operations <laughs> rather than some lady who served on a USO tour like a decade earlier, but had not done any active military or governmental role since that moment. You don't need all that training to deliver a letter. I, well, you never know. What if you get into some like James yeah, Bond you situation? Like, you want kidnapped that James or Bond. You don't want her. She can't fire a gun. She doesn't know Tai Chi. Like, what is she going to do? I don't know if Tai Chi would help you. She doesn't yeah, know tai, Kung Fu. Tai Chi wouldn't help you. <laughs> Kung Fu <laughs> would help. Krog, Krog Maga. She doesn't know that. She didn't go to Israel. Anyhow, I'm pretty sure that's what the Israeli military learns is Krog Maga. <laughs> Fun side fact that our listeners can write and tell me I'm wrong about. Uh, (laughs) Actually, Rob. (laughs) They train in catch-as-catch-can wrestling. I don't know. I love you guys. I love all of you. Write in, correct me if I'm wrong about the Israeli military training in Krag Maga. (laughs) If I'm even pronouncing that correctly. (laughs) I'm pretty sure it's being pronounced correctly. Okay. You've heard it before, Mims? Yeah, yeah. That's that one where you can break people's legs and stuff. Uh, yeah, oh there's like a, a million ways to kick somebody in the balls or something like that. We are very off track. <laughs> Savannah's right, because Candy Jones knows none of this. She doesn't need to. What is it? What is she what? I said and she doesn't need to. <laughs> she is a boss bitch running her own business, telling her dad to go fuck himself when she's only four years old. <laughs> she's awesome. Right. She took a nutcracker to the knuckles. <laughs> Why would she need any more added to her legend, right? <laughs> so, so Donald Bain, the guy who's writing this book, suggests that Jensen's programming of Candy Jones took place almost exclusively at a nondescript office in Oakland, California. <laughs> now, Savannah, tell me if this pushes you too far. <laughs> Candy Jones had to fly back and forth from New York, where she ran her business, to Oakland to receive his treatments. But wait, there's more. In exchange for her service to the CIA, Jensen arranged to have the government pay for her three boys to attend private boarding schools. It's worth noting that the boys were already attending these schools, but the government apparently volunteered to pick up the tab because direct payment to Jones would have been too suspicious. See, this is, you know what? I totally believe it. She's playing the government. She's getting her kids a good education for free. 
but that she was somehow paying for already is, is the point I'm trying to make. So she didn't actually need the government to help her, but apparently they did. And how much, like, any, what is your fee, Savannah? How much is it, like, <laughs> when you get your paycheck, is, is, is Lego, like, uh, do you want to be paid in dollars or, like, how much would you like to be paid? How much does it cost for you to feed your dog? And you're like, oh, like 50 bucks a month. We'll pay you that. That's not how, that's not how, pay, that's not how paychecks work. She's I can pay you in gum. Chesapeake College is not, what, how, what, name your expenses, Robin. We'll pick some of them and pay them. <laughs> like our, our Patreon is oh. not just like random things we would love people to just pay for. Boarding school is expensive. It is, I, I agree. I agree. It is. <laughs> I don't plan to get involved in, in the boarding school scene. Anyway, Jensen programmed Jones with vitamin shots, which contained sodium amytal, which triggered her childhood imaginary friend Arlene Grant to surface and become an increasingly conscious alternate persona. The name Arlene Grant was a combination of Jones's middle name, Arlene, and half of her grandmother's last name. I don't know her grandmother's last name, but it involved Grant. Hmm. As Arlene Grant Jones made trips around the country, she went to the Caribbean, and she went to Taiwan, where anti-American agents captured and tortured her for a brief indeterminate period before releasing her. Now there, Oof. you want to yeah, be James that's Bond. That's cool. You want to be Jane <laughs> Bond. You want to be Lady Bond. Should have taught her Krav Maga. Right? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so this is where their plan fell apart. You know, they, they had all the strings going, and then and then it, this happened. And, and the Taiwan like, oh, no. affair, yeah. But we that's all we know about the Taiwan affair, is that she got captured and tortured, and then eventually they were just like, okay, we're done. We'll send you home now. Just Even we're more bored. reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> As the Taiwanese do. <laughs> so... Jensen was not the only one to get involved in Jones's programming. She met a second doctor while she was working on a radio show in Chicago. She was set to perform on this radio show when she suddenly had an attack that mirrored her malaria she'd had while she was in the war. The show put her in touch with a doctor who Bain calls Marshall Berger. Dr. Berger treated Jones, but also happened to be in the employ of the CIA as a mind control specialist. So now she's being mind-controlled by Dr. Berger, Dr. Berger, who was the doctor that the radio show she was guesting on one day in Chicago, happened to call to treat her hysterical malaria. I'm using the word hysterical. Mm. It's a dated term, but you know what I mean, that she had some sort of psychosomatic malaria. And Dr. Berger was brought in, who just so happened to work for the CIA. (laughs) (sighs) Right. Still reasonable. I believe it. (laughs) Someone at the show had to know that Jones was working with the CIA, which Jones never mentions, by the way, never mentioned this in any of her deprogramming, or this has got to be an incredible coincidence. Berger was also weirdly evil. So, um, so this is the weird coincidence, Rob. Oh, so the, the the last, all the other stuff you don't find coincidental. This is pushing Savannah too far. Yes. (laughs) It's getting too coincidental for you? you know, okay, well, let me tell you about weirdly we'll see. evil. I need, I need more information, more context. He held classes in which he taught people, including Candy Jones, the virtues of racism. Oh, no. Using hypnosis, Berger trained Candy as well as any others attending his, 
hate classes to hate African Americans, Jews, Italians, the French, the Chinese, and the Japanese. He also taught her to generally dislike other people, which resulted in Jones becoming increasingly isolated, but significantly not so isolated that she wasn't able to continue her business or remarry. Hmm. Why does Dr. Burger man, you have such a cool name. You could have been such a cool guy. <laughs> you said you had to teach. You had to ruin it. It did program people to be racist. Uh, but, but the book in Candy Jones, uh, is uh, they're well aware that this is evil. They characterize this as her evil programming, which, you know, if you compare it to Kathy O'Brien a year ago, it's far more tame. Still bad, but far more tame than what happened to Kathy O'Brien. On Jones's birthday, December the 31st, 1972, she married the midnight talk show host, radio guy, Long John Nebel, N-E-B-E-L, Long John Nebel. You can hear Long John Nebel's, some of his broadcasts today if you want. If you go on um, the Internet Archive, archive.org, you can listen to Long John Nebel. I did while I was prepping for this episode. So Nebel was a, I'll get, I'll do this for a second. Nebel was a midnight host. So he, he ran the midnight talk show, which used to be a big thing. Like all the way through, until podcasts were invented, the midnight show was a big deal. You would call in in the middle of the night. You know, this guy would be on from midnight to two or midnight to four or whatever, uh, and, you know, the craziest stuff would be on him at midnight. So this was Long John Nebel. Uh, and he did all sorts of paranormal stuff. So he would talk, He talks about stuff we talk about. He was like the original us. Oh. A, a little bit like weirder, maybe even. Sending his next of kin, like, royalty checks or something? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, he didn't call his show Occult Confessions, and there wasn't any chanting involved, so, no, we don't have to do that. Okay, yeah, it's the <laughs> chanting that does it. <laughs> We've we've successfully, I think, uh, launched our own our own scene here. We could at least call it parody. <laughs> so, <laughs> Neville and Jones had actually known each other from earlier in Neville's career when he'd worked as a photographer, and they had a quick courtship. Neville had started in show business at the age of twelve when his father allowed him to fill in for a clown in a traveling circus. He literally ran away to join the circus, but he didn't have to run because his dad was like, "Okay, cool, you <laughs> go get him, go get him, Tiger." Uh, <laughs> So he went on to work in theater management. He performed in a band. He performed a mind-reading act in vaudeville. And he became a photographer, Mm. how we met Candy. Uh, And he eventually ran his own large retail store. And it was weirdly, like of all those jobs, it was while he was running the large retail store. And I assume doing his own commercials, it's not exactly clear in his book. Uh, He attracted the interest of radio producers and pulled him, who pulled him into the broadcasting business. And then he became the legendary Midnight in New, this was in the New York uh, metro area, so the legendary New York metro midnight guy. So he was just like talking over the intercom one day while they were grocery shopping. He was like, "Oh, that guy's voice sounds so good." <laughs> that That's it. That's the guy. On at we midnight. must have him. <laughs> <laughs> but only but not midnight. earlier than eleven forty-five. <laughs> <laughs> That's the voice of midnight. <laughs> So getting back to their to Nebel Long John Nebel marrying Candy Jones at their wedding, and so at the very the very night of their wedding and in the days after their wedding, Long John Nebel noticed that Candy Jones suffered from unusual short term mood swings. This, as he would come to discover, was Jones's second personality, Arlene. Nebel met Arlene when he attempted to help his wife with her insomnia using hypnosis. Does this sound like anybody? Anybody we know, Savannah? 
Um, Husband deprograms the wife using hypnosis? Oh, yes. You mentioned her earlier. Her name Kathy. Kathy, yep. Kathy O'Brien, yeah. I do. I remember her story a lot, and actually, maybe not all of it, because it was pretty traumatizing. <laughs> you blocked some out. blocked a lot of it out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe like her name, but I do remember us talking about that. Olivia and Brie and I just did Michelle Smith, who was deprogrammed, or I guess debriefed in some way by her therapist, who became her husband, Lawrence Pastor. Hmm. Common, not, I'm not going to say common at all. Um, it's not common, but it, there, there's a pattern emerging here. Long John Nebel had never, he was a radio guy, he had never tried hypnosis before this moment. He just did a mind-reading performance on stage that was all fake. This was his first attempt, although he had discussed the topic at length with guests on his radio program, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. These sessions brought out some of Candy Jones's childhood memories, which I've related to you guys, but also memories of her sessions at Dr. Jensen's office in Oakland, where she was mind-controlled, again for the CIA. Nebel inserted himself into these memories, playing the role of Dr. Jensen and asking Jones to engage with her memories more like lucid dreams than actual memories, talking to him as if he were Jensen in real time. So we sort of played a character during these things. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of uh, fictionalization going on. Nebel had a hostile relationship with Arlene and fought with his wife's second personality in an effort to get her to stop intervening in their married life. He threatened to exorcise Arlene, saying he would burn her out of Jones if necessary. Um, hmm. So, sort of like having a meddling sister-in-law if she lives inside of your wife. That was not a sentence I was expecting to hear today. (laughs) I'm, I'm... Here to keep it fresh. <laughs> There's no corroboration for any of what Jones and Nebel discovered together. The evidence Bain does offer is scant. There's a picture that Bain says is a passport photo of Candy dressed as Arlene, but there is no passport. I wanted to see the passport. So in Bain's book, he's got all these, he's got the, you know, the insert with all the pictures in it. And one of them is this picture of Candy Jones dressed as Arlene. And he says that's her passport photo, but... How do I know that's a passport photo? Where's the passport? Well, it, yeah. Yeah. The argument is, I think, that Jensen kept the passport. He always held on to her travel documents. There's also a strange message on an answering machine from an airline in Japan and a letter Jones wrote to her lawyer saying how she he should tend to her estate if she vanished. Bain reproduces the letter from her lawyer. We'll say he reproduces a letter, not that letter, but a different letter from her lawyer, indicating that he recalled Jones asking him to carefully look into the facts of the case if she died under an assumed name, and affirming that he had received flight insurance statements from her various travels around the country in the 1960s, particularly to the Caribbean. So... Still no smoking gun. This speaks to Jones' state of mind in the 1960s. She was apparently a little bit paranoid, um, and so she she communicated that clearly to her lawyer. But it is not proof that she was working for the CIA as a mind-controlled spy. To get from that to, from point A to point B, there's just too many loops you got to go through. You see what I mean? Yeah. I guess. No, I'm just... Um, I mean, it's not that unbelievable that somebody who's like kind of a celebrity would go under an assumed name also she technically candy jones is a, an assumed name 
Yeah, she's, so like, she's sort of right? got a habit of so, it, you're right. Yeah, so it's like, maybe she meant, like, if she died now as Candy Jones, like, would that affect, because her real name is Jessica something? Like, I don't know, like... Or, or maybe yeah. she liked to pick up other names when she was traveling to disguise her identity so that she didn't get hounded by fans or, or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I mean, that's reasonable. There are too many alternate explanations, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. And and mm-hmm. I just need something more if you're going to tell me you're a CIA mind control spy. Uh, and, and here's the thing. It's hypnosis, man. <laughs> it's hypnosis. So it's entirely possible. All of this came out of hypnosis. So it's entirely possible that Nebel and Jones unconsciously collaborated to fabricate a story they both believe to be true. Given the evidence available, it's as likely as not that Jones was treated by a medic in the South Pacific named Jensen and never saw him again. While in trance, she hallucinated memories guided unknowingly by her husband of this medic controlling and manipulating her. Because after all, he said, just picture me as Dr. Jensen. Right? He's manipulating her imagination when he's saying, act like I'm him. When she was treated by another doctor in Chicago for complications going back to her wartime malaria... She included that doctor in her fantasy. Given her trance state and long John Nebel's complete lack of psychological training, again, he is a professional in no thing at all. He is a professional clown. He is a professional <laughs> retail salesman. He is oh a professional God. vaudevillian and radio guy. He is not a professional therapist. Complete lack of psychological training. It stands to reason that Nebel and Jones convinced themselves and each other of the authenticity of the story. Nebel's midnight talk show experience listening to stories of conspiracy and hypnotism may have primed him to unconsciously coach Candy's seeming revelations. Something we should all worry about. Keep in our minds, dear listeners, as you're listening to stories of conspiracy and hypnotism. Okay, so that's my preferred interpretation of the origins of Jones's story. However... Nebel was also known to play practical jokes and engage in hoaxes, and so I can't rule out the possibility that he and Candy Jones intentionally made this story up as a kind of satire or farce on the conspiracy or intelligence community. So maybe they're playing a joke on us. You ready for this? In his book, The Way Out World, John, Long John Nebel, so this is the book he wrote, talks about his friendship with a mentalist at the circus where, when he was an adolescent. The circus barker told an elaborate story about Lady Esther predicting a train crash during her valedictory speech in high school. But Esther, whose actual name was Diane, spent most of her free time and money visiting other fortune tellers as the circus traveled from town to town. (laughs) Her telepathy was a mentalist stage trick, and guess what? There was never a train crash. Oh, uh, this is you. Mims, you want to do this? It's the second quote I sent you. Oh, second one? Yep. Okay, so uh, Mims is going to do our voice today, because all we're doing is a little bit of long John Nebel quotes from his book, just a couple of them. As I got to know Diane better, I was able to learn about some of the modest operandi employed by the pseudomentalists. Using the phrase pseudomentalists leads one to believe that I think there are legitimate mentalists. I don't, because I've never seen one, and I've talked to dozens. Regardless of Esther's trickery, this is the beginning of Nebel's fascination with things psychic and occult, if only as a tremendous confidence game. In the same sentence he expresses his interest in paranormal practitioners, he says that selling is the greatest form of self-expression in the world. So he really sees himself as a salesman with an interest in these things. Is it possible that Nebel Jones and Bain made this story up? Knowingly. 
and shared it cynically. Here's where the, I'm going to twist the screw here, guys. You ready? Dun, dun, dun. Two years before publishing The Control of Candy Jones, Donald Bain wrote a book about Nebel, evidently a close friend of his. Bain's largest body of work, however, was a series of murder mystery novels he ghostwrote for the fictional character Jessica Fletcher. Do do either of you know who Jessica Fletcher is? What show she's featured on? I've heard the name. That sounds familiar. What if I tell you she's played by Angela Lansbury? Oh, come on. I've heard the Fletcher name. Fletcher is the name of the mystery writer Angela Lansbury played on the hit 1980 CBS series Murder, She Wrote. I keep waiting for you guys to say it. Murder, She Wrote. You don't know that Murder, show? Murder, She Wrote. No. Oh, classic of the 80s. I've heard of it. I've heard of it, classic but I haven't Classic murder it. mystery series. Basically, Murder, She Wrote is just is about this murder mystery writer Jessica Fletcher uh, and Donald Bain is writing all of her murder mysteries by the way <laughs> so he's writing under the pseudonym uh, and she she just like she has a thousand friends and all of them either die or are accused of murder and she has to run around solving these murders <laughs> and she's always knows better than the cops and the cops for some reason just let her solve the cases it's wonderful I mean less work for the cops <laughs> So, while ghostwriting for a character uh, readers know to be fictional does not qualify as a hoax, it does speak to Donald Bain's capacity to participate and perpetuate a well-constructed fiction. What if the whole Candy Jones story was just a way to capitalize on gullible conspiracy theorists and make some money? A fast buck, Freddy. What's interesting about the publication history of the book is that it was first published in 1976 as The Control of Candy Jones and then reissued in 2002 as the CIA's Control of Candy Jones. You see what they did there? Oh, Oh. rebranded. Bain hedges his bets in the text itself as to whether Jensen is even working for the CIA. So he's not, he's like, he mentions the CIA, but he says it could be that it's just somebody else, some other agency or some private group. I have no idea. But it could be the CIA. The second title, however, in 2002, suggests his and his second publisher's desire to capitalize on the controversy sur- surrounding MKUltra and the conspiracy theories growing out of the theme of CIA mind control. The text itself is unchanged in the new edition, and so it contradicts its own title's enthusiasm for blaming a government intelligence agency for whatever persuaded Candy Jones she had been mind-controlled. Foregrounding the CIA doesn't reflect the actual, actual content. It's just a bit of salesmanship to draw in the conspiracy crowd with their increasingly rich trove of CIA-based beliefs. While it's not impossible that all of this was a hoax... I'm going to turn that screw again. You ready? Oh, man. It's, I was excited. I wanted it to be a hoax. That's fun. It is fun. That's awesome. <laughs> it's, it's fun, and, and I think that there's a, you can make a case in all that stuff. However, it's my personal belief that Nebel and Jones shared their story in good faith. Despite Nebel's measured skepticism on most of the topics covered on his show... He appears to have had a soft spot for hypnosis and hypnotic phenomena. He devoted several chapters in his book, The Way Out World, to alien abductees. One of his guests was George Van Tassel, who claimed that Adam was an extraterrestrial who mated with an earthbound Eve to generate the human race, and that Jesus was also an extraterrestrial who intentionally incarnated in Mary to educate humankind. (laughs) If you didn't get all that, don't worry about it. It's not important. 
like, wait, what? Then why did Eve get kicked out of the garden and stuff? Like, oh, yeah, she was just doing heck? what the aliens told her to do. While acknowledging that Van Tassel had his share of believers, most of whom presumably went on to found the History Channel, Nebel calls them kooky and says he isn't buying Van Tassel's (laughs) bit. I assume he would say the same about the History Channel. Nebel prided himself (laughs) on using the phrase, I don't buy it, in the face of what he considered to be nonsense. So it's one of his like catchphrases is, I don't buy it. (laughs) However, his tone shifts when discussing Bridie Murphy, a regressed personality drawn out of a housewife by the businessman Maury Bernstein in 1952. Bernstein hypnotized the woman who went by the pseudonym Ruth Simmons, and she recalled her life in Ireland as Bridie Murphy, which they published as a book in 1956. Sound familiar? No. Newspaper reporters investigated Simmons. Well, maybe not Bridie Murphy, but I'm just I'm saying this is exactly what Jones and Nebel did. Oh, is he yeah, hypnotized sorry. her and then published a book? Okay. <laughs> but it was not about a regressed. It was it was about a regression. It was regressed memories of her adult life as a CIA mind control person. Uh, but Bridie Murphy claimed to recall a past life. Gotcha. Newspaper reporters investigated Simmons' account, and they had mixed responses. One paper discovered evidence of some of the people mentioned in her story living in Ireland between 1798 and 1864, which was Murphy's lifespan, the regressed personality. But another paper reported that Simmons had an Irish aunt who fed her the whole tale as a child, and she'd taken the name Bridie Murphy from Bridie Murphy Cockell, who lived across the street from her childhood home in Chicago. And no reporter found any documentary evidence for Bridie Murphy that Simmons described. Nebel is aware of all this, but he is not thrown by the skeptics. Rather, he calls her hypnotizer Bernstein an honest and sincere man, and notes that Simmons had accurately named two grocers who had lived and worked as grocers in the time that she described. Which is kind of amazing, (laughs) to be honest. Mims, can you name two grocers who worked in uh, Edinburgh in uh, 1798? I, uh, there's probably some dude named John, uh, maybe, uh, maybe a person named, uh, uh, the, the Steve, John and Steve. I, I don't John know. I don't know Steve. if Steve is a very Scottish name, but John, uh, maybe. A Scottish name, uh, I'm going to have a bunch of letters from Steve's in Scotland. <laughs> the Scottish Steve's are going to come after me. <laughs> there's no escape from the Scottish Steve's. <laughs> so, talking about Edgar Casey, the sleeping doctor who prescribed prescribed cures by the thousands while in trance. You guys have heard of Edgar Casey, right? I don't know. I don't think so. You haven't heard of Edgar Casey? Sure. Well, Nebel was effusive in his praise on Edgar Casey. Mims, give us another Nebel quote. Oh, the no matter what we think. No matter what we think of the powers he was supposed to possess, he was a remarkable man. His great reputation and wide fame never gained him anything for himself, his family, or his friends. Hundreds came to prove that he was a charlatan and stayed to believe, even preach his doctrine, even if only one-tenth of all that was said about him was true. 
it still leaves mysteries for which science has no explanation. Nebel elaborates on his opinions with a chapter specifically on hypnotism in which he seeks to dispel myths around the subject. First, it's not true that the hypnotizer must have the patient's consent to perform hypnosis. After the initial trance, a post-hypnotic suggestion can cause involuntary trance experiences afterwards. Second, Nebel says it's not true that a hypnotized subject would never do anything while hypnotized that they wouldn't do while conscious. Go ahead, Mims. A clever operator can disguise the action so that a person might do something that he wouldn't do normally. This is all recorded in Nebel's book, published in 1961, which, for those of you who are keeping track of our timeline today, is more than a decade before he would marry and then hypnotize and regress Candy Jones. Jones's story fit neatly into Nebel's paradigm and snuck through a weak spot in his skepticism. According to Nebel's understanding of hypnosis, Jones need only have been willing to be hypnotized once. Oh. Jones need only have been willing to be hypnotized once for Jensen to take advantage of her with post-hypnotic suggestions ever afterwards, and her second personality created the perfect opportunity to sidestep Jones's own morality. It's interesting that he uses the whole like, well, even if only one tenth of what he said is true, then it's like still still amazing. Because that's what people said about, was it Blavatsky? Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that there's a point to be made about Edgar Casey in that regard. Uh, but my point is just that he is very much on board with hypnotism, that he believes sincerely in hypnotism 11 years before he's even married to Candy Jones. Mm-hmm. So I don't think he's faking it. I think he is a true believer. Gotcha. Uh, he, he's almost like a gullible believer in the power of hypnotism to do things. Because truth be told, hypnotism can't do the things that he's talking about. I mean, he's not entirely off the mark, but regressions in particular are highly suspect from a psychological standpoint. Most hypnotists and psychologists, professional hypnotists, psychologists, I'm not talking about professional hypnotists like the guys that tour college campuses and and make people cluck like chickens. I mean, like people who use it to solve (laughs) trauma and stuff. These people uh, do not tend to believe in regression as a possibility. So, Mm, okay. Yeah. I mean, they they think it's possible to recall memories, but that it's very easy to distort and suggest those memories, no matter how careful you are. So I really think that they sort of developed this story together, but they didn't realize they were doing it. Which makes sense. Let's get to Rob's take. What interests me most about Jones's story is the way it resonates across the decades. And this I referenced a little bit earlier. In 1973, Candy Jones was hypnotized by her husband and recounted incredible stories of mind control and split personality under the direction of the CIA. In 1976, Michelle Smith engaged in a form of self-hypnosis with her therapist, who would go on to divorce his wife and marry her, and recounted incredible stories of mind control and split personality under the direction, at this time, of a satanic cabal. In 1993, Kathy O'Brien was hypnotized by her husband and recounted incredible stories of mind control and split personality under the direction of Satanists associated with the CIA. (laughs) In each scenario, the hypnotizer husband occupied the role of savior to his helpless bride, or soon-to-be bride in the case of Smith. Joan Smith and O'Brien were all on the verge of a psychotic break, but for the intervention of these brave men. Smith's therapist. Those white knights. 
these white knights, and they were white. Smith's therapist, <laughs> Lawrence Pastor, was the only professional out of the three, but Pastor admitted to violating a number of professional standards in his treatment of Smith. The personal relationship in every case outweighed the therapeutic relationship. This in turn colored and shaped the narrative told by the patient, and this personal relationship likely encouraged these men to accept their wives' confessions, regardless of how outrageous their claims became. In every case, these women recounted a version of what I have come to call in this series ritual evil. What's unique about Candy Jones is how tame her encounter with evil was in comparison to Smith's and O'Brien's extended sexual and physical abuse over the course of months for Smith and years for O'Brien. Whereas Smith talked about being penetrated by a candle and O'Brien claims to have been subjected to extensive sexual abuse, Jones was the victim of a different kind of penetration, the vitamin shots. Think about that. Ooh. Everyone describes a form of unwanted penetration. Candy Jones's is just more PG than the other two. Isn't that wild? Despite the... Are you guys still there? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are you just processing that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you didn't think no about the vitamin shots say. that way before, did you? But no, now... No, I didn't. Now, wow, at look all. at that. Yeah. She's getting frequently penetrated by these vitamin shots, just like O'Brien was frequently penetrated, sexually abused, and so Smith. It's so weird that you say that, because when you were telling that part of the story, I was like, what the... What do the vitamin shots have to do with anything? Right? It's weird. Here we are. Yeah. Despite the fact that Jones was a pinup girl, none of her controllers took advantage of her sexually. I do want to note that. Unlike Smith's and O'Brien's experience, her mind controllers never went further than having her relay messages. The worst Jones's controllers did was teach her racial hatred, isolate her from others, and unintentionally subject her to torture at the hands of America's enemies, who for some reason were in Taiwan, which is a friendly country with the United States. (laughs) So I, mean, I don't even know. To be fair, all that, oh like all the God. stuff that they sub, like that part of what they subjected her to, the, the still pretty bad. Still pretty, yeah. still pretty messed up. Still pretty bad. Uh, but you know, compared to O'Bri- O'Brien, is like all <laughs> new levels of bad. I guess oh, is yeah. my point. It's it's bad. Even Smith. I mean, the the dead kittens they would rub on her body and stuff. Like it just isn't mm. as graphic. Uh, but it is bad. I agree. It's bad stuff. So S- Jones's narrative is far less is a far less graphic prototype, in my opinion, for the more lord and shocking stories that followed. It's kind of like in my, I want to use this metaphor. It's the black and white 1950s horror movie compared to the 1980s gut, guts and gore slasher. Got me. Yeah, it makes yep. sense. So like the horror movies. This could actually be generational. Smith and O'Brien came of age in a more graphic culture than Jones, who was born during the Depression. So Smith's story and Jones's story came out around the same time, but Jones is much younger. She was in her 20s when she was working with Pastor. Uh, I think Jones was maybe in her 40s, 50s, when she was working with Long John Nebel to create this story or, or to recall this story. So she's just from a different time, a more innocent time, I guess, when we think culturally. Um, as opposed to Smith and O'Brien, you know, came of age in the 70s and the 80s. So she was all up in those uh, Rosemary's baby situations and stuff. 
The conspiracy trance narratives of Jones, Smith, and O'Brien are all literally mediating between the subconscious and conscious mind, giving voice to a personal id that arguably reflects the id of the larger cultures in which they are situated. It's interesting that Jones more or less invents the trope of CIA mind control, given that she is the only one of these women to have a documented relationship with the United States government and United States military as a lead performer with the USO. The medic who treated her in the South Pacific is inverted into her abuser in peacetime. Perhaps repressed feelings about the horrors of the war in the Pacific and her suffering while on tour bubbled to the surface despite her demonstrable patriotism. She's, you know, a, a, quite a, she loved America. Arlene becomes the vehicle to express her terror and hatred of the government she loves in that case. That's Rob's take. What do you guys think of the Candy Jones story? Um, <laughs> it's a uh, lot to process. I mean, yeah. Yep. <laughs> I won't it, disagree with you there. We're just very, yep. Uh, I love all the coincidences. They're amazing. How they this line up like or the coincidences expert. within her story or the, how the way they line up with other stories. No, oh, uh, the coincidences within her story. Uh, yeah. Just incredible. Like this sounds like a great, movie that i would love to watch and then tear apart because i'm like this doesn't make any goddamn sense yeah like (laughs) like i was i was i was just about to say it it sounds like the plot of a movie it it (laughs) sounds like the plot of like like a you know weird political thriller an overly complex movie starring tom cruise and the ripping masks off and it's like a mission impossible right yeah yeah All right, let's open up the Order of Confessors, shall we? We're going to gong it on in. All right, we got so many reviews to talk about today. Gang, I am... Uh, last episode, we... Two episodes now ago, we asked folks... We mentioned that we were being, um, uh, let's say, targeted by conspiracy folks who are beginning to write on our review page. It was just a couple folks. Uh, and we had like a dozen responses to this uh, it was like wrapping us in a warm blanket, a warm blanket of confessors uh, protecting us. Uh, it, it's just wonderful. It's a wonderful feeling. I can't get to all the reviews today. Uh, I'm going to do some of them because I want to make sure they all get a moment. So we're going to do some today and, and some the next episode. But I want to thank all of you who uh, jumped on that review page. Did you guys know that happened? No, I no. didn't. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're sort of we're not even having a war with the conspiracy trolls. We're we're just <laughs> these guys. They're punching bag. Yeah, these guys are. <laughs> yeah, guys, gals, everybody. Yeah, it's wonderful. So, first, I want to mention Catherine H, uh, a Canadian confessor who wrote her own review, saying that we've created the classroom feel, uh, and she means that in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> a good classroom <laughs> feel. Uh, but she sent me all of the Canadian reviews. She screenshotted them because I can't see reviews in other countries necessarily. I have a hard time. I can access oh. them, but it's very tricky. Huh. Uh, so let me do the Canadian reviews, which are going to be old now. Sinister Villain loves the music, the production and research, and calls out Olivia and Shannon and James, uh, as well as yours truly. Rocky S says we're a hidden gem. Uh, and we have Catherine H. And then I think I did the other Canadian reviews. So that's pretty good. If you're in Canada, review us. <laughs> we have a lot of U.S. reviews, not so many in Canada. Uh, but we love the love from the, our Canadian friends. Now our U.S. reviews in response to the conspiracy trolls who can be seen on our review page in the United States. Blue Back Cut 
Blue Buck Cut says the show is akin to a senior university course with the alchemical actors as the students and the performers. Very nice. Mm. <laughs> Klingon Dirty Talk, who I think is a regular friend of ours. I've, I've, I feel like I've said, I've mentioned Klingon Dirty Talk before. Uh, says dir- good research and production. Hanged Fool says it's not for everyone, but we have our niche. Loves us a plus. Sleepy Janitor likes hearing the conversations. Appreciated the research and citations. Also, the lack of ads. You got it, Sleepy Janitor. <laughs> Cardinal Cardigan enjoys the irreverent banter and research that I bring to the table. Uh, it's like a rowdy classroom where everyone really wants to learn. I love that. Hey, that's like yeah. your actual classrooms, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. It is like that. Uh, I'm a little more formal, I think, Savannah. <laughs> Bear in mind, there's also more of an age gap as I get older here between me and those students than when you were oh, in that's class. Fair. <laughs> Bowman MLB looks forward to our podcast all the time. Dave's DMV appreciates the detail and the insight and that we don't take ourselves too seriously. And Doombox simply says, love it, A plus, and calls us an educated group of occultists. Thank you. Aww. Thank you all. And if I haven't gotten to your review today, I will get to it next show. I just want to give it all the love it deserves. All right. Our sources today include Donald Baines, The CIA's Control of Candy Jones, The Way Out World by Long John Nebel. Uh, and I did dig into The New Yorker a bit. Um, Donald Trump and the legacy of Long John Nebel. Of course, uh, we had no reason what? to discuss what Donald Trump to today. With- it, was, it was just an article more about Long John Nebel. But anyway. Oh, okay. Okay. Uh, do you, so do either of you know how to bring it on home? Hereby adjourn. Um, I hereby adjourn and declare close this secret order of com- uh, alchemical actors until such a time as we get together and do it again. It's pretty close. You just missed the words of the meeting of. But other than that, you had it. Very good. Woo! Woo! Uh, joining me today at the microphone, I had Savannah Verrett, sister of the 84th degree, whose tin fa- tinfoil hat comes on and off as we record. Goodbye, and I don't buy it. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're going to try to adopt the Long John catchphrase? Yep. <laughs> I say that all the time, though. Oh. Like that, when you said that, I was like, oh my god, I use that phrase all the time. <laughs> Maybe I'm like re- him reincarnated. <laughs> Ooh, that's possible. We'll have to check the dates. Andrew Mims, uh, our secret, our, our unnamed, our secret name. Yeah, the, the, the... the uh, uh. Oh, God, it burns! You can't, just can't say it. Just can't say it. <laughs> My name is Ropsy Thompson. Uh, and thank you for joining us for this episode. Join us next time when we discuss Nazi mind controllers, basically, but the, the Nazis who were brought into the United oh. States by the United States military, uh, one of whom may have been involved with mind control. But again, this is the conspiracy series, so guess what? <laughs> That's going to turn out to be nonsense here on A Call Confessions. <laughs> <laughs>